Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His kingdom. Okay, um, so our first order of business is to get the Bible situation sorted out. So if you have one that you brought or a device that you use to look at the text, you can take those out. If you don't have something like that and you'd like to have something in front of you, it'll be on the screen, but if you want to have something in front of you, raise your hand. One of these fine gentlemen will hand you a Bible. I did not have time to look up the correct page number. So everyone needs to find Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Matthew 8, 18. <clears throat> and so uh, it, if you've been around even at all for the last handful of months, you know we're working our way through Matthew. Uh, if you have read that book ever, you know Matthew is a gospel, which means it's a narrative of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, it's basically a story. It's, it's telling about things that happened. And uh, yet, because it's in the Bible, Christians say this is in some sense the Word of God. This is uh, something that we are supposed to receive, and it should shape our faith and our life as Christians and all that stuff. And so sometimes uh, in Scripture, a certain verse, it's very straightforward to figure out how this would be the Word of God to us. Like if it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, it's fairly clear. Like, okay, what you shouldn't commit adultery, I guess, is what that means. Um, if the verse is, Jesus got up from that place and went to the Sea of Galilee, it's not as obvious um, we're not really doing uh, show, uh, question and answer right now, bro. I think I think you need to hold off till the uh, till a little bit later if you want to do that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in cases of a narrative, it takes a little bit more work to determine, you know, what's the interpretation here? What does this mean for us? Um, and so I guess what I'm going to tell you today, based on a decent chunk of text, is not the definitive meaning of this passage. It's a take on this passage. And uh, you could conceivably read the text and come up with a different thing. And so... Um, we actually want to encourage people in, for this particular block of text and in general to, uh, we encourage you if you're up for it, to spend time in Matthew as we're working our way through it. You know, reading it, thinking about it, trying to figure out, you know, what is God saying to me as I'm reading this? What am I noticing that's interesting? Stuff like that. We encourage uh, lots of robust engagement with the text because we only have time to say so much if we don't want to keep everyone here for hours and hours. And there's lots of rich significance to these stories. So the basic thing that I'm trying to convey today, uh, my text is Matthew 8, 18 to 34, and sort of the core thing uh, is that many people find Jesus compelling, uh, but Jesus is not interested in merely superficial followers. That's the key idea. So if, you're, if you don't want to listen to the rest, you can leave and you have the key idea. Uh, so let's move on. Let's start in chapter, uh, verse 18. Chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Um, in 
the 70s and 1970s, 1980s, there were uh, a lot of people in Southern California and in the country in general who were really interested in Jesus. And this gave rise to what they called church growth specialists. And a church growth specialist was uh, an expert in making churches grow really big, really fast. And uh, some church growth specialists used tactics that some of us might not be 100% comfortable with. So, for example, uh, some people would recommend things like, you know, park extra cars outside your parking lot so that your church looks more popular and then more people will come because it's like a happening church to be at. Um, right. So some, uh, actually a really common suggestion was if you want your church to grow fast, make it as homogenous as possible. So if your uh, area has mostly middle-class white families, fill your church with only middle-class white families, and then all the other middle-class white families who come will be comfortable because everyone's like them. And then more and more and more people will show up and your church will grow huge. Which apparently does work, but we're kind of giving some things up, right? We're, we're sacrificing some other really important aspects of the gospel. Uh, so maybe these things feel a bit unwholesome. And my point is, this sort of... Um, this sort of institution is mainly about the bottom line, you see. It's mainly about how many people. It's not about what kind of way do we want to do it, but how do we get more people into churches? How do we get more butts into seats or into pews uh, quicker? And so I bring this up to convey that Jesus is not a church growth specialist. Uh, by the standards of a church growth specialist, he kind of sucks at it, actually. Uh, because he has a great big crowd surrounding him, and he sees this, and because he has a great big crowd surrounding him, he leaves. Uh, everyone knows what you do if you have a great big crowd around you is, you know, you give an altar call, harvest the souls, or, you know, they're, they're apparently by the Sea of Galilee, so mass baptism might have made sense. Uh, he doesn't do that. He leaves. That's, that's counter... It's, it's not what you do if your main concern is numbers. Okay, so we'll go to verse 19. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So the first person we meet is the scribe. Uh, the scribe was the intellectual elite of the day. Most people couldn't read or write. Scribe was an expert in reading and writing. So think of like the Harvard grad, the scholar, uh, the, the very learned, privileged, elite person. Probably someone who's living a fairly comfortable life. And uh, he's ready to follow Jesus. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus discourages him. Basically what I take his response to mean is, this is not going to be 100% comfortable for you. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to be prepared to give some things up. You're going to have to be prepared to live hand to mouth. You're going to have to be prepared for something you're not used to. Make sure you're ready for what you're signing up for is the idea. The second guy um, says he wants to go and bury his father first, which seems like a reasonable request, perhaps. Um, and in, in this world, in, in Palestine in this time, um, it was actually a very important religious responsibility 
to bury your parents. This is part of, you know, honor thy father and thy mother is one of the key commandments. Um, seeing to the burial of your family was a crucial religious obligation. Uh, so while we might see this as unreasonable, Jesus, why won't you just let him bury his father? Uh, it's probably not offensive enough to our ears. Uh, this is really objectionable in this culture. And it may be that uh, it's not 100% clear if the guy was on his way to, like his dad has recently died and he's going to go take care of it, uh, or if it's more the sense of let me look after my father until he's gone and that obligation is dealt with and then I'll be positioned to follow you because I don't have this other important thing to deal with. Uh, that's also possible and also an extremely important religious obligation of the time. Look after your family, honor your father and your mother. Um, but regardless, uh, shockingly, uh, Jesus says, follow me. That's your top priority, even ahead of this extremely important commitment. Um, so what I take it to mean is Jesus is not interested in being the second most important thing in someone's life. Uh, everything else is relativized if you're going to follow me. Everything else is rearranged and reorganized around that first commitment. And that should be uh, offensive to us, or we're not hearing it right. So in a nutshell, what I've seen so far and what we've read is uh, Jesus is not first and foremost trying to get as many people to follow him as possible. He makes some real barriers for certain people. He makes it hard in certain ways. Um, he doesn't just try to get as many people to sign up as possible before they have a chance to reconsider and then hope that they'll stick around after they realize, oh, actually, what about this, what about this, what about this? Uh, following him is not a lightweight decision. It's not a picnic. It's not a minor thing to do. And so he uh, is treating it as such. Okay, so verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea, so, that, uh, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demoniacs, that's men who were demonized, uh, coming out of the tombs met him. They were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's my, that's my <laughs> demon voice. <laughs> now, <laughs> a large herd of swine was feeding at some distance from them. The demons begged him, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go! So they came out and entered the swine, and suddenly... The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. The swineherds ran off, and on going into the town, they told the whole story about what had happened to the demoniacs. Then the whole town came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their neighborhood. Uh, if you're not familiar with stories like this, uh, the demon stories in the Bible, um, they probably sound very strange. 
and I don't have time to really address that in a satisfying way today. I will save that for some time. One of I or someone on the teaching team will talk about that sometime. Uh, but I want to stay kind of on track with the main point I'm trying to make. So I'll just I'll acknowledge, I appreciate that may sound very, very odd. We could talk about that one of these days. But we have these two stories, uh, which I see as contrasting. And I'm not going to say everything that could be said about them. But in the first story, we see Jesus bring calm to a storm. And um, if we want to say that, then I'd say in the second story, we see Jesus, you might say, bringing storm, uh, storm to a calm. Uh, he's making a mess in the second case. Uh, in the first case, Jesus does something compelling. He does something astonishing. Uh, he does this great work of um, demonstrating his authority over nature, of protecting his disciples and keeping them safe when they're in peril. Um, there's more things going on there, but that's what I basically see. Uh, this is one of the many reasons people find Jesus compelling. Who is this guy? What is up with this person? How is this happening right now? Um, but in the second story, um, Jesus is not the most convenient guy to have around. And um, there's a version of this second story, the demoniac story, in uh, Mark and Luke as well, which tell the story a little bit differently. And the way that Mark and Luke tell the story, the emphasis is much more on personal transformation, on liberation, on someone being reincorporated into their community, um, a person being transformed and, and restored by Jesus. But that is not the emphasis, if you look over later, in Matthew. In Matthew, the emphasis is squarely on the mess that Jesus makes. Uh, and it is a serious mess. Um, most of us don't interact with livestock as a regular part of our lives, but losing a herd of swine is a really big deal for the person who owns this herd. That's not a small thing. That's a serious economic problem that Jesus has just caused. Uh, and it's potentially a problem for the town as well, because uh, unlike today, where I can just go to the grocery store and food has been shipped there from all over the place, um, and I can just get it if I have some money, or probably if I don't, I can find ways where people will help me out with some food anyway. Um, food is in really short supply. It is scarce. These guys live in the desert. And um, again, if there's a herd of pigs for a town, and those uh, are no longer available to eat, that's potentially a problem. You certainly can't have a guy roaming around your area, you know, destroying herds of animals. That's just, that's not acceptable. Uh, that's a serious problem. Um, it's no wonder that the swine herds run from there, tell everyone what's going on, and everyone comes out and says, Jesus, please, please, please go away. This kind of help we do not need. It's understandable that that would be the reaction. Um, so to summarize what, this, what I'm seeing in this passage, uh, we see that Jesus is not a church growth specialist. He is not a great salesman. He's not always convenient to have around. He does bring calm and healing and restoration, but he also causes serious problems, and following him involves serious sacrifice. That's how I would summarize what we've seen. Uh, so as folks sitting in this room today, uh, what does that mean for us? It probably means a lot of things, but the three that I'll highlight are these. First, uh, what is faithful is not always popular, and what is popular is not always faithful. Um, it can be tempting to 
measure a church's success based on how many butts you get into seats on Sunday morning or how many people come uh, to your small group or whatever you're doing. Uh, it is tempting as someone who teaches up front to measure my success on how many compliments I get afterwards. Uh, and if you're leading worship or doing something else, it's tempting to do that. How nice people are being about what you did is it's tempting to evaluate yourself based on that. It's tempting to evaluate yourself based on how popular you are as a person, how many friends you have, or how well-regarded you are. Um, I would say none of these things are terribly important in the kingdom of God. They are irrelevant. Um, if I have my sort of kingdom glasses on, if I'm thinking in a Christ-like way, I don't want to care about those things. I want to know where are lives being genuinely transformed by God? Uh, where are people giving up the convenient and the comfortable in exchange for the faithful? Where are people bearing a bold, authentic witness to Jesus with their lives? Um, namely, how is, how is God at work in the world around us? What is God up to? Where is God bringing transformation? How are we being faithful to him? That's what I care about, not numbers, not these sort of superficial measures of success. So I think that's one implication from this passage. Second, um, we shouldn't always be in a rush to get people saved. Um, I care very deeply about people coming to know Jesus, following him, making commitments to him. Um, that's very important. I spend time praying about that. I spend energy towards that end. I care about it a lot. It should consume a lot of our attention. It is important. But there is a school of evangelism that treats uh, telling people about Jesus roughly how you would treat selling cutlery door to door. Right? I mean, you, the, the goal explicitly is to get a response, a commitment, a decision as quickly as possible before someone has time to think twice. Do it as quick as you can, move on to the next person, hit as many people as possible. Uh, that may look good in terms of numbers, but that does not match how Jesus does things in the scriptures. Um, furthermore, I think oftentimes we simplify, oversimplify um, the picture we present about what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. You may have noticed uh, Christian testimony often takes the form, everything sucked, Jesus, then everything was good. That's how we narrate our stuff, right? God did this thing. Everything sucked, Jesus, everything is good. Um, so look, in some cases, the bad Jesus good testimony is the truth. And by all means, if that's the truth, let's not be ashamed about it. Let's tell the truth. And praise God when it's bad Jesus good. But... Um, but we know if you've been doing the Christian thing for any length of time, that's not that simple, right? Not everything is bad, Jesus, good. There's still complications and complexities and difficult periods in life and so forth. Sometimes very seriously difficult. Uh, I don't think we're doing God or anyone else any favors by presenting an overly simple, shiny, idealized picture of what following Jesus is like. Scripture doesn't do that. And what happens if someone does always hear bad Jesus, good, and they uh, are surrounded in that, and that's all they ever hear is suddenly something bad happens to them as a follower of Jesus, and they have no idea how to handle it, and they feel like this is only happening to me because that's all they're ever hearing from anyone. Uh, I think it is a good idea to talk about our faith in a way that reflects its complexities and complications accurately. We have no reason to uh, be artificial about that. My life was much more comfortable before I followed Jesus. It was much easier. Um, that's reality. I don't want to lie about that. <clears throat> okay, third. 
uh, we shouldn't expect our walk with Jesus to be comfortable, and we shouldn't expect to always get what we want. Uh, I think most of us are here because we do find real benefit uh, in following Jesus and being Christians, but, uh, and we look forward to even greater benefit to come. Uh, but following him, it's clear, does mean willing to be in, being willing to be inconvenienced, embarrassed, and perhaps even hurt along the way. That's part of what you sign up for if you sign up to follow Jesus. It's not a lightweight thing. Uh, so what might it look like to live in a way that reflects that we know this is what we have signed up for, or um, if we're saying, we're gonna, yes, I'm going to keep going in spite of that? Uh, it could mean a lot of things. It's going to be a bit different for each person in their own circumstances, but just to give us a little taste of maybe what to expect. Uh, I think living like we think this is true may mean uh, quite a lot of the time serving others even when uh, doing so isn't necessarily going to be perceived as normal. Um, I think we all recognize, yes, I want to serve other people. That's important as uh, someone who follows Jesus. We want to be like him, and that means serving others. But uh, we also have these scripts that society kind of gives us that we are actually pretty bound to most of the time, I think. I think a lot of the time uh, I want to do something Christ-like. I have that impulse, but then I am held back by, well, but that's kind of weird. Or like, oh, that's not what normal people do. There's this sense that I have a way I'm expected to behave in this situation. And that is surprisingly influential over me a lot of the time. I don't know if you find that to be true. Um, yeah. <laughs> So if you find yourself in a situation where um, you have an opportunity to do something Christ-like and uh, it violates the script, then violate it. I challenge you to violate it and to expect this to come up. This isn't a hypothetical maybe someday. It's like today you will probably have an opportunity to violate one of those scripts in favor of doing something Christ-like, so do it. Expect it to come up and be ready. Um, that's one thing. Uh, living like we think this stuff is true may mean associating with people who are not easy for us to be around, who are uncomfortable, or who otherwise we wouldn't have chosen to be with. That may be part of it. It may mean giving money away rather than buying something we want or something like that. Uh, it may mean telling people about Jesus and being laughed at or insulted as a result. I've been laughed at a number of times by people. And it may mean complicating a relationship which has also happened to many of us, I'm sure. Um, these and many other things are involved. Uh, the point is, if we are only willing to follow Jesus, if it means we don't have to be inconvenienced, embarrassed, or put out, then we aren't willing to follow him in the way he's interested in being followed. So I'm going to say a little prayer, I think. And if someone wants to give us some, some music, um, once I'm done with that, there might be some instructions on how we can respond to what we've heard. Uh, but I'll just close this up in a little prayer. God, I thank you that you are uh, you're patient with us. You meet us uh, where we are. And um, you know our weaknesses. You know our struggles. You know our difficulties. And you uh, embrace us in spite of them. Uh, please give us the grace to be able to grow and step forward and increase in the extent to which we are willing to be inconvenienced for your name, uh, embarrassed for your name, uh, otherwise put out for your name, uh, 
increase our expectation that this is not going to be always easy, not always look like exactly what we want or what we expect. Um, help us to recognize that following you is well worth it, that anything we give up, uh, we receive back far more, that you have much more uh, beauty and richness. Um, help us to joyfully forsake the comfortable and the convenient uh, for you, for, for, for what's faithful.